Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginier on TalkShoe. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. It is Friday, December 30th, 2011, my last Christoginier on TalkShoe this year. I thought it would be a good, positive note to end the year with an exposition on the book of Obadiah. Tomorrow night, I'm going to give an off-the-cuff presentation. Uh, I'm not going to make any notes for it or, or do anything fancy. I'm going to have a general discussion centered around the settlement of Europe that's going to be, I hope, kind of like a synopsis that, that explains my last three presentations, which have been on um, Trojan Roman Judah, the Dorian and Dan and Greeks, and on um, the Phoenicians the identity of the Phoenicians. And, and tomorrow night, I, I hope to clarify some things and slow it down a little and give a more relaxed presentation and, and explain the... Um, discuss some of the archaeology, the, the pre-Israelite migration archaeology, some of the things that have been found in Europe. And, and um, in context with the scripture... And, and in context with the Jepethites, the, the earlier Jepethite settlement of Europe, which I really didn't get into in the last three programs, but which I have covered recently and in the paper on my website, The Race of Genesis 10. But I thought I'd pull all that together tomorrow and, and in, in, in just an extemporaneous general discussion. And that's how I'll end the year. I'll be looking for participation and feedback and questions, so I'll take callers tomorrow night as long as you're not a troll and as long as you're on topic, that, that'll be important. But, but yeah, I'd like to hear from people that have questions about my, um, my presentations on, on the Greeks and, and the Phoenicians and the Romans. That, that would be interesting. And, and I'll get into the Germanic tribes also tomorrow and, and Britain and Ireland and things like that. And, and I hope to... to, to um, at least cover everything more generally and, and more casually than I than I do in my formal presentations, right? In, in a more conversational manner. Tonight I'm going to discuss the book of Obadiah and several related prophecies. The prophecy of Obadiah is, of course, a prophecy concerning Edom, that nation which descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. In order to understand the prophecy concerning Edom, one must first have an understanding of all the history of the nation and its relationship to Israel and to God from the days of Jacob and Esau. So that's where I'll be beginning tonight, back in the book of Genesis. Just as a brief overview... The angels that left their first estate, and I'll be discussing this tomorrow too, left it because they decided to race mix with men, and also with many other species, something which we find only in apocryphal literature, but which our Bibles as we know them today does not sufficiently explain. That there are things left unexplained, I believe purposely in, in the scripture by God, because we just aren't given to know everything. In, in this age. And we can't claim that we do. When Adam was placed into the Garden of Eden, however, it's quite clear that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, 
the results of that first rebellion against God was already in the garden. These were a race of people, or angels, if, if we should call them that, who at one time knew good, and then they knew evil. They experienced evil when they had rebelled against God. Their creation is not explained in Genesis. And Christ tells us in Luke chapter 10, and in Revelation in chapter 12, that they fell from heaven. The fall of Adam was the partaking by Adam and by his wife Eve of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They race mixed with that person or people represented by the epithet of serpent. Cain was the result of this first race mixing. And in spite of the, the, the first race mixing by the Adamic people, Adam and his wife, and in spite of the corrupted text that we currently know as Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it can be discerned in several other ways that Cain was not the son of Adam, although he was the son of Eve. Later on in the New Testament, but also often in the allegories of the Old Testament, are the descendants of Cain often referred to as serpents or with similar words, like Leviathan. It can be told from Genesis and in several other places in Scripture that the descendants of Cain, the Kenites, later mingled, they mingled themselves with the Rephaim, who were the product of that later mixing of angels and men found described in Genesis chapter 6. The Rephaim were the giants, the sons of Rapha, the giant, who was one of the Nephilim. The Kenites also mingled themselves with several other tribes that have no genealogy with Adam or with Noah, as we can see in Genesis chapter 15. And by this time, they also became mingled with various tribes of the Canaanites, that portion of the descendants of Ham, of Ham's last son, Canaan, who were cursed by God. In all of this, we have, in a nutshell, what we call 2C line, or dual C line, which is merely the observance that the biblical narrative is centered around the Adamic descendants of Adam through Seth and through Noah, which were a replacement for the murdered Abel, which are the seed of the woman, and their eternal opposition, who are the partially Adamic descendants of Cain, the Rephim, who were the Nephilim, and later Canaan, and then later Esau, and countless others who have since mixed with them, who collectively are the seed of the serpent. This theme is summarized in the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. While tonight it can only be presented in brief, by understanding this theme, one possesses the key to understanding the Bible and all of history and the events which are transpiring in the world around us today. Esau was, as Paul of Tarsus called him in Hebrews 12:16, a profane man and a fornicator. Paul used the term fornication to describe race mixing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he was referring to the, the seduction of the men of Israel by the women of Moab in Numbers chapter 25, a race-mixing event. Jude tells us that fornication is the pursuit 
of strange or different, as the Greek says, flesh. So fornication is race mixing. In 1 Corinthians 10, it's race mixing. In Jude 7, it's race mixing. And Jude also equates that fornication to the sin of the angels which kept not their first estate. It's also equated as to the way of Cain and to the error of Balaam. The only example from the life of Esau which justifies Paul's description of him as a fornicator in Hebrews chapter 12 is his proclivity to race mix, which we shall see. Yahweh, being God, evidently knew of Esau's treachery from the beginning, long before Esau was even born. And upon her conception, it is recorded that Yahweh told Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, that two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Genesis 25:23. Here it is appropriate to walk through the early lives of Jacob and Esau. At their birth, Genesis 25:25. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came out his brother. And his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bore them. And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, which is related to the word Adam, and which means red. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall his birthright do for me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did drink and eat and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, Esau evidently never cared for his birthright because the next thing he does is to mix his race by taking wives of the Hittites. This also proves that the Hittites themselves were of mixed origin, as Genesis chapter 15 infers that they mingled with the Kenites and the Rephaim and the other non-Adamic tribes listed there. And we read at Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. Now, if the curse of Cain were individual, if it were personal, if it, of Canaan, I'm sorry, if it were limited to Canaan, and if the Hittites were not a mixed race, the Hittites descending from Heth, the son of Canaan, 
There would be no real reason for Isaac and Rebekah to grieve over Esau's marriages to these Hittite women. Rather, it is fully evident that the curse of Canaan was perpetual against all of his generations. Later, in Genesis chapter 27, the grief of Isaac and Rebekah is expressed once again in the last verse of Genesis 27:46, where it says, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do for me? Jacob had already rightfully taken Esau's birthright, which Esau despised, and Jacob took it fairly. And Esau then proved his despite for his birthright by marrying into the accursed race of the Hittites. But a transfer of the birthright is not assured without having also obtained the blessing of the firstborn. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 25, Isaac loved Esau for his own stomach's sake. He loved to eat of the venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob, and evidently Rebekah understood the importance of Jacob's obtaining the blessing of the firstborn. And that's the story of Genesis chapter 27. And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see, he called Esau, his eldest son, and he said to him, My son, Behold, and, and he said, meaning, and Jacob said to him, Behold, here I am, or, or Esau said to him, Behold, here I am. And he said, Behold now, I am old, I know not the day of my death. Now therefore take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out under the field, and take me some venison. And make me savory meat, such as I love. Isaac evidently loved his stomach. And bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. Isaac's last concern appears to be his own stomach. And Rebekah heard when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt for venison and to bring it, and Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Behold, I heard thy father speak unto Esau, thy brother, saying, Bring me venison and make me savory meat that I may eat, and bless thee before Yahweh, before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Of course, this is Rebecca speaking. Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for thy father, such as he loves. That's a pretty heavy appetite. And thou shalt bring it to thy father that he may eat, and that he may bless thee before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Yet, you know, not for nothing, but the description of Esau was the same way that the ancient Caledonians were described as being very hairy and red. So I don't think that means that Esau was not white. A lot of people like to say that um, Esau was somehow the child of some demon or, or Satan or some devil. And the scripture, leaves, the scripture leaves absolutely no room for that. In many places, the scripture explicitly states that Esau and Jacob were both the sons of Isaac. The people that want to 
make Esau the child of the devil, like Cain was, or the child of some demon, generally they don't want to um, accept the fact that a white man can indeed be a race mixer and be wicked, even to the point of wanting to kill his brother, as Esau wanted to do to Jacob once he saw that Jacob was going to get the blessing. Well, white men can indeed be evil. Real children of God, when they're in rebellion from God and filled with the pride of their own hearts, can indeed do wicked things. And we have to keep that in mind. In Joshua 24:4, it says, And I gave unto thee, this is Yahweh speaking, and I gave unto, unto Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, not unto Rebekah, but unto Isaac. They were both his children. There's no doubt from Scripture. Anybody who tries to claim otherwise is simply making up their own Bible because they don't like the Bible we have. And, and that, as Paul says, it is evil. If the truth of, of, of God is magnified by my lie, why am I still called a liar? Well, because a lie is a lie. Whether it's for good or for evil, it's, it's, it's a lie. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. My father, peradventure, will feel me, and shall, I shall seem to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse. My son, only obey my voice and go fetch them. And he went and fetched and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory meat such as his father loved. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob, her younger son, and she put the skin of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. And she gave the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And he came unto his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who art thou, my son? And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. So Jacob is lying. He's lying to get what he, does, what, what he has coming. He's lying to get what Esau already sold him. It's still a lie, but there are good lies and there are bad lies. That's the way it is in Scripture. And there are many examples of good lies, but we still have to recognize that they're lies. I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because Yahweh thy God brought it to me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy as his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him, and he said, Art thou my very son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat. And he brought him wine, and he drank. 
And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which Yahweh is blessed. Therefore God gives thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curses thee and blessed be he that blesses thee. We see that We see that Jacob is receiving from Isaac the same blessing that was passed down from Abraham, from God to Abraham. And now it belongs to Jacob. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of the blessing of Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory meat, and brought it unto his father, and said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison, that thy soul may bless thee. May bless me. And Isaac his father said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, my, thy firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that has taken the venison and brought it to me? And I have eaten of all before thou came. And it blessed him. Yeah, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceedingly bitter cry, and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety, and has taken away thy blessing. In the ancient world, they were very serious about their words, and, and that's a seriousness which we've lost today. Our culture has... But with the Jewish media and the influence of Satan in the world, our culture has diminished the meaning of our words to nothing. At one time, men were very serious about their words. Verse 36, and he said, is, it not, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob means supplanter. For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Has thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy lord, and all his brethren I have given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do unto thee now, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered, and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass, when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. I will slay my brother Jacob. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, thy brother Esau, 
as touching thee or concerning thee, does comfort himself purposing to kill thee. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise, flee to Laban, my brother, to Haran, and tarry with him a few days until thy brother's fury turn away, until thy brother's anger turn away from thee, and he forget that which thou hast done to him, then I will send and fetch thee from there. Why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, the Hittites. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? Isaac, concerned about his belly, Rebekah had to remind him of the more important things, Esau's race mixing, which fully justified her assisting Jacob in deceiving his father. Jacob gained a birthright through deceit. But it was rightfully Jacob's because Esau despised his birthright and gave it away. And the real cause was his race mixing. He was a fornicator and a profane man, as Paul of Tarsus said. Esau in his pride, forsook his birthright, mixed his race, and then wanted to kill his brother, to whom the birthright rightfully belonged because Esau never did care about it in the first place and sold it to his brother fairly. Esau is the perfect, perfect example of just how bad things can get when men go wrong. If Esau were allowed to succeed in his plans, there would be no white race today. Esau ignored all of the responsibility which men have to raise children in their own image and was distressed when he lost the blessings that should have been his. He evidently did not see that the blessings and the responsibility went hand in hand. Today, most of our people are just like Esau, demanding the blessings of God but having no care for any of his demands upon us. They whine and scoff and blaspheme when his blessings are withdrawn. Isaac loved Esau in spite of his bad attitude because Esau filled his belly with good things. Rebekah knew well that her, her life was lived in vain unless Jacob had legitimate offspring. In this first family, we see the same old struggle which our race endures today. Genesis 28.1 And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Isaac finally sees the importance of his wife's concern and steps up to do something about it. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, my, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, my mother's brother. And God Almighty, Bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham. So even Isaac here reinforces the notion that Esau was to be bypassed. And to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram 
unto Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. And here we see, if we examine the genealogies of Scripture, Laban is a descendant of Abraham's brother, and he's not really a Syrian by race, he's only a Syrian by geography. So we see the early confusion of genealogy and geography. Even though in Laban's time the Syrians were, of course, white, they were Aramaeans and cousins to the Hebrews. Where it says Syrian, the Hebrew word would be Aramean. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take him away from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, screwed up even more. Then he went Esau unto Ishmael and took wives, took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife. Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 8 through 16, so that we see the whole thing in context and what Paul's saying about Esau. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all of Israel, of course, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits, Yahweh our God, and live? For they verily for a few days, meaning our natural fathers, chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, meaning Yahweh, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised thereby. Wherefore, Lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, all men, and holiness, and this is important, without which no man shall see Yahweh. The word holiness is Hagiosmos in Greek. It describes that which has been separated and dedicated unto God, which only describes the children of Israel who were commanded by God to be a separate people unto him. Hagiosmos is the sanctity of being a separate people. And Paul says here that without it, no man can see God unless the children of Israel keep themselves distinct. Unless, as the Apostle John says, their seed remains in them. They can't see God. 
bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever, period. Without that sanctity, which Yahweh only bestowed upon the children of Israel. As Paul says here, no man can see God. No bastard is going to see God. No bastard is going to see the judgment seat of Christ. And fools in Christian identity are teaching that today. That is pitiful. Verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Those roots of bitterness were the rebellion that led the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to race mixing. It's the rebellion that led the children of Israelite, the, the children of Israel to chase after the, the, the strange gods and fornicate in the woods in the high places. Bitterness in Hebrew is a metaphor for rebellion. And thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator. Race mix it. Or profane person. Let me explain that. A profane person, something profane in the New Testament. There are two kinds of foods, profane foods and unclean foods, that we shouldn't, or, or that the people in the New Testament were told not to eat. There's a difference between them. Something profane is something which was not slaughtered and treated in the manner prescribed by the law. That was considered something common. Something handled by the uncircumcised was something which was profane. It wasn't something which was unclean, which is never to be eaten at all. Paul is calling Esau a profane person because he shared himself with people who were not of the blood, who did not, who were not worthy of marrying into our race. Those people are profane. They themselves might be children of Israel. They themselves might be children of God, but they profane themselves by sharing themselves with those who are undeserving. They break that hagiosmos. They break that sanctity of being a separate people. You're either holy or you're profane. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Why? because he didn't care about it in the first place. That's why he married Hittite women. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Let me repeat Genesis 28.8. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan, two of whom he was married to, Please not, Isaac, his father. Then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, the Canaanite wives. He added to them, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife. 
I have a few historical notes here. Nebioth is most likely the eponymous ancestor of the Nabataean Arabs, the only Arabs with a credible direct link to Ishmael. Of course, the word Arab, when used of a people, means mixed, and all Arabs are mixed. That is why they're called Arabs, because they're mixed. In the 7th century BC, Assyrian inscription of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, and I'm re- I can cite in reference to this inscription where it's found in ancient Near Eastern texts. Ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, Princeton University Press, 1969, In this inscription, there is a mention of both the peoples of Ishmael and the Nabataeans, and they're mentioned right in those same lands where the Bible says that they were. The Nabataeans dwelt in the same areas as the ancient Edomites did and remain in southern Jordan and its surroundings in one form or another unto this day. Paul, speaking of Esau, says in Hebrews 12:17, "For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears." Esau sought it. Jacob, I'm sorry, Esau sought it. Isaac was displeased with Canaanite women, two of which he had married. Yet he still found no place for repentance because he had no acceptable offspring. It's that simple. When he finally learned that his father was displeased with these Hittite wives, he went out and took wives from the daughters of Ishmael. There's no telling who it was that Ishmael had married when he was put out of Abraham's presence, but evidently neither did that act leave him any room for repentance, and that is certainly what Paul is referring to in Hebrews 12:17. Having no legitimate offspring, having all mixed offspring, you can't have the birthright because the race ends with you. There's nothing to leave it to. There's no legitimate entity to leave those blessings which Yahweh gave to Abraham and his seed. Esau couldn't inherit them because Esau had no heirs. And even when he saw that, he went out and screwed up even more. Rather than looking for a wife of his own race, rather than asking his father who he should marry, he went out and got himself an Ishmaelite, who had already been excluded from the covenant. Ishmael had already been excluded from the Abrahamic covenant. How could Ishmael, how could Esau find room for repentance in that? Another lesson from the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau, the proud and strong man, had it all. And he lost it all due to his race mixing. There's no other reason for Esau's losing it. It's very clear right in Genesis. Jacob, the mild and humble man, was his supplanter, which is the meaning of his name, But Jacob only managed to supplant Esau because he obeyed the will of his father, while Esau despised his birthright. Another lesson from the story of Jacob and Esau, one who through pride and strength makes his own rules, loses in the end. One who through humility and understanding 
submits to the will of God, he wins in the end. He gains the favor of God. This leads me to want to contrast Esau and Judah. Both men were race mixers. Malachi states explicitly to Judah, who very clearly in the scripture had a Canaanite wife. Malachi says that Judah married the daughter of a strange god. Yet, for some reason known only to God, Judah found repentance and Esau did not. However, Judah did not find repentance of his own accord. And this is also important to remember. Yahweh had put it into the heart of Tamar to stand in the road as a whore, knowing what Judah's incontinence would lead him to do. While Tamar, through whoredom, would get the children that she deserved, being betrothed into the house of Judah. Therefore, Judah had legitimate offspring, although that had come about due to his own sin, because he went chasing a whore who happened to be Tamar, and he didn't even know it. So in this manner, Yahweh assured us that there would be a legitimate tribe of Judah in spite of Judah's own actions. God had mercy on Judah, evidently for the sake of Jacob, not for the sake of Judah, but he did not demonstrate that same mercy for Esau. Esau had no legitimate offspring. Saw that the Canaanites finally realized the Canaanites weren't any good and he went and got himself an Ishmaelite, which was evidently just as bad at that time. Upon their emergence from the wilderness following the Exodus, the Amalekites and other tribes of the descendants of Esau fought against the Israelites on many occasions. Yahweh avowed at Exodus 17:16, that he would have war with Amalek from generation to generation, forever. David ultimately enslaved many of the Edomites, which is seen as early as 2 Samuel chapter 8. This is in part a fulfillment to the words of Isaac that Jacob would have a yoke about Esau's neck, as they are recorded in Genesis 27:40. Of the Assyrian conquest in Palestine, which we see recorded in the Bible, beginning with 2 Kings chapter 15, where Shalmaneser is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18, we have surviving Assyrian inscriptions from that same king who was known in the inscriptions, and, and he's known to historians as Shalmaneser III, who boasted of his excursions into Palestine. The inscriptions tell us that in his day, Syria, Tyre, Sidon, Israel, not Judah, and Edom, and other nations, which we do know from Scripture, were all subjected by the Assyrians at this time. They were all paying tribute to the Assyrians at this time. Edom is listed as a tributary to the Assyrians in several later inscriptions, including those of Sennacherib and Esarhaddon, which also described the deportations of the Israelites and the Judahites. And these inscriptions can be found in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament on pages 287 and 291. 
the historicity of these people and their later identification as the Edomians and the Nabataean Arabs of Greek and Roman times cannot honestly be questioned. We have it in our Bible and we have it in ancient inscriptions. The Edomites indeed played the role that Scripture lays out and tells us that they played. There should be no doubt it's supported with archaeological evidence and much of it. When the Chaldeans invaded Palestine and Judah and destroyed Jerusalem, it is evident that the Edomites had joined their cause. This is found in Psalm 137, verse 7, where recalling the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, it says, Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. I would like to read 1 Esdras, chapter 4, verses 42 through 45, from the Septuagint, which is a historical account. Verse 42 then said the king unto him, and, and I'm sorry, this is missing from the version of Ezra we find in our King James Bible, which is just a chopped up version of 1 Esdras. 1 Esdras is a much more complete, accurate, and better book. Then said the king unto him, Ask what thou wilt more than what is appointed in the, with, wilt more than is appointed in the writing, and we will give it to thee because thou art found wisest, and thou shalt sit next to me, and shalt be called my cousin. Then he said unto the king, this is Ezra speaking, Remember thy vow which thou hast vowed to build Jerusalem in the day when thou camest to thy kingdom, and to send away all the vessels that were taken out of Jerusalem, which Cyrus set apart when he vowed to destroy Babylon, and to send them again, there or thither, thou hast also vowed to build up the temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. So we see in the earliest historical books of the period, which are 1 Ezra, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the Edomites, we are told, had destroyed the temple of God, the temple of Yahweh, when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. The Edomites were, were, were tributaries to the Babylonians and, of course, part of the Babylonian army that destroyed Jerusalem. According to the scripture, Psalm 137.7, and I'm going to read the entire Psalm 137 momentarily, and, and 1 Esther chapter 4, the Edomites took a leading role in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Here is all of Psalm 137, which shows the context of the verse concerning Edom. The psalm was written as a lament following the final deportations of the people of Jerusalem to Babylon. We must bear in mind that not all of the 150 songs belong to David. A significant number of them do, but they are not all David's. Later psalms were added to the book of Psalms. Verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hang our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. 
How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember me, thee, let my cheek cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes thy little ones against the stones. Speaking of the children of Edom. Ezekiel chapter 34 is a prophecy about the dispersed of Israel. The lost sheep. The entire chapter is about the lost sheep who have wandered through all the mountains. In Ezekiel's time, Israel is already deported, for the most part, by the Assyrians. Small pockets of Israelites, it's very clear in later history, were left behind. However, most of Israel was long gone by Ezekiel's time, and chapter 34 is about them. Ezekiel chapter 35 is a prophecy concerning Edom. And let me say that 46 fenced cities, most of the people of Jerusalem were also taken away by the Assyrians, and we should never lose sight of that. The Assyrians left inscriptions that read very much like the accounts in Kings and Chronicles concerning the Assyrian siege on Jerusalem. And the Assyrians tell us that they took all the major cities of Judah, 46 fenced cities of Judah, and deported countless people. And the Assyrians left inscriptions that state that Hezekiah, the king at the time, was left sealed up like a bird in a cage. And that's because Yahweh, our God, wouldn't let the Assyrians take Jerusalem. He wanted to leave Jerusalem for the Babylonians. So the Assyrians made political spin, and that's the inscription that Sennacherib left. That Hezekiah was sealed up like a bird in a cage. But the rest of the Judah, he took away. So we should never lose sight of the fact that most of Judah was taken away by the Assyrians with Israel. And they're with Israel unto this day. And none of them were ever known as Jews, right? Ezekiel chapter 35 is a prophecy concerning Edom. It shows that the Edomites were to take the land of Palestine for themselves after the Israelites were taken away. And I will read it here. Verse 1, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, meaning Ezekiel, set thy face against Mount Seir. Mount Seir was Petra. In, in the earliest account of Genesis, it was called Mount Horus because the Horites lived there. The Horites are known to archaeologists as the Hurrians. They are a branch of the Canaanites. In Genesis chapter 10, they are called Hivites. It can be demonstrated that the scribal confusion, due to scribal confusion, the Horites are often called Hivites in our Bibles. So the Hivites and the Horites are the Hurrians of archaeology. Mount Seir was their home. 
And Esau went to dwell there in Mount Horus, as it's called. And Mount Seir was another name for the same place. It's called in modern times Petra. And say unto it, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will make I will stretch out my hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh. Because thou hast had a perpetual hatred, and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by force of the sword in the time of their calamity. This is referring to the Edomites taking part in the destruction of Jerusalem along with the Babylonians. In the time that their iniquity had an end, therefore as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Since thou hast not hated blood, since thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. There were corresponding prophecies. In Luke chapter 21, and in Jeremiah, that the bad fig Jews and, 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 and the people who rejected Christ will be chased by the sword throughout all lands and become a reproach and a proverb and persecuted. They're the enemies of God, not the people of God. Thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate and cut off from it him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men in thy hills and in thy valleys and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. And I will make thee perpetual desolations and thy city shall not return. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. Because you have said, and this is important, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine. And that means Israel and Judah. And we will possess it whereas Yahweh was there. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will do even according to thine anger and according to thine envy, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee. And thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, that I have heard all thy blasphemies which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me, and I have multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Thus saith Yahweh God, when the whole earth rejoices, I will make thee desolate, as thou didst rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel. Because it was desolate, so will I do unto thee, Thou shalt be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Edomia, even all of it, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. This prophecy may seem to have to do with the land of Edom, and to some degree it does, since that entire region is today a fairly desolate place. But it was never fulfilled that all, all those mountains would be left with the dead bodies of the Edomites. Just as the phrase mountains of Israel is an allegory for the people of Jacob, the term Mount Seir is an allegory for the people of Esau, a people comprised primarily of the Jews of today and since the time of Christ. Here I will repeat verse 10, where Edom is the subject. 
Because thou hast said, because these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there. This describes what is later evident as fact. That the children of Esau moved into the ancient land of Israel after the deportations of Israel and Judah by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. These are the people who in the second century before Christ, the Maccabees had forcibly converted en masse to Judaism. This is recorded by Josephus. It's recorded in the book of, books of the Maccabees in part. Judaism was only the Greek name for the religion of Judea in Jerusalem. And, as the historian Josephus attests, these people were then considered, once they were converted, as being nothing other than Judeans. That's in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 9. So in the second century B.C., something happened that can be verified in history. It can be verified in Josephus. It can be verified in the Maccabees. It can be verified in the New Testament. The enemies of Israel and the enemies of Yahweh were suddenly and magically transformed into the so-called people of God. And Satan has been able to deceive the real children of God by that tragic error of history ever since. In the centuries to follow, as Christ also indicates in the New Testament, the Pharisees of Judea were able to actively convert many thousands of other non-Israelites to Judaism, making them all twice fold the children of hell. This is also talked about at length in Lightfoot's commentary on the New Testament from Hebraica and the Talmud. The next chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 36, is written to the mountains of Israel. But it cannot mean the literal mountains in the land of Israel, since for the most part Israel no longer inhabits that land. And at the time that the words were uttered, the land belonged to the Assyrians who were bringing other peoples in to inhabit it. They brought many peoples from many different races in to the land of Canaan in the 6th and 7th centuries B.C. And that, too, is recorded in Scripture. It's recorded in Ezra. It's recorded in Chronicles. And it's recorded in Assyrian inscriptions, which we've dug out of the ground. The phrase mountains of Israel must be an allegory for the tribes of the people of Israel in their captivity. And it very often is in the Scripture in the prophecy. Ezekiel 36, verse 1. Also, son of man, prophecy under the mountains of Israel, and say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. So the mountains are the people. Of course, the, the, the physical, geographical mountains aren't going to hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh God, because the enemy the enemy, meaning the Edomites. Because the enemy has said against you, aha, even the ancient high places are ours in possession. So we see that Esau is characterized as the enemy. 
Therefore prophesy and say, thus saith Yahweh God, because they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, that you might be a possession unto the residue of the heathen or nations, and ye are taken up in the lips of talkers and are an infamy of the people. Therefore ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of Yahweh your God, Thus saith Yahweh God to the mountains, and to the hills, and to the rivers, and to the valleys, and to the desolate wastes, and to the cities that are forsaken, which became a prey and a derision to the residue of the heathen that are round about. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, surely in the fire of my jealousy have I spoken against the residue of the heathen, and against all Edomia, the residue of the nations, and against all Edomia, which have appointed my land into their possession with the joy of all their heart, with despiteful minds to cast it out for a prey. Prophecy, therefore, concerning the land of Israel, and say unto the mountains, and to the hills, and to the rivers, and to the valleys, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury, because you have borne the shame of the heathen. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, I have lifted up mine hand. Surely the heathen that are about you, they shall bear their shame. But you, all mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. We see again in Ezekiel 36.5 that the Edomites had taken over the ancient lands of Israel and Judah. This describes the 6th century B.C., which is when that very thing happened. The Edomia of Persian, Greek, and Roman times was the same land that the Bible anciently knew as much of Israel and Judah. Once the first Edomite king, Herod, after all of the Edomites were forcibly converted to Judaism, the first Edomite king, Herod, once he came to power in Judea, about 40 B.C., the priesthood at Jerusalem and its sects became mere political tools. Decades later, when the Pharisees confronted John the Baptist, he told them that the axe had already been laid to the root of the trees and challenged them to do good, if indeed they could. While John also told them that God could raise up children of Abraham, which the Pharisees claimed to be, from stones, he did not tell them that that would make those children of stones the heirs of the covenants which only belong to Israel. Later, Christ told the Pharisees that a good tree could not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree could not produce good fruit, but that all the trees not making good fruit would be destroyed. All of these sayings are allegories for race in the New Testament. The trees are races. The tree of Israel cannot make bad fruit because God forgives their sins. The tree of Esau cannot make good fruit. It's not possible. All of Esau's descendants are race mixed. At John chapter 8, we see the Pharisees claim never to have been in bondage, something which no Israelite could attest to, but it's even a lie from the lips of an Edomite. The Edomites were in bondage to Israel from the time of David to the time of the Assyrians. Christ then disclaims them as the children of God, and he tells them that they were children of the devil, 
This could only be true of the Edomites, who had descended from Esau, but also from his Canaanite wives. In John chapter 10, Christ told those same Pharisees once again that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep. Today's churches teach that the Judeans did not believe Christ. They weren't his sheep because they didn't believe him. That's a lie. That's not what Christ said. Christ said they didn't believe him because they weren't his sheep. There's a huge difference. Modern churchianity is lying about the situation. They weren't his sheep in the first place. So, that he, so therefore, they did not believe him. That's what he's saying. My sheep hear my voice, as he says in that same chapter. Therefore, these Pharisees who rejected Christ must have been Edomites and not Israel. Even though the Apostle John tells us that there were Pharisees who wanted to believe Christ, but didn't because they were afraid of the Jews, because they were afraid of being tossed out of the synagogues. In Romans chapter 9, Paul expresses a concern for his brethren in Judea. He doesn't express a concern for the Edomites. He expresses a, ter- a concern for his brethren who were actually Israel. Those who, as he says in Romans 9, were his kinsmen according to the flesh, not mere fellow residents or fellow citizens. Paul goes on in that chapter to contrast and to compare Jacob and Esau. Paul calls the children of Esau in that chapter vessels of destruction. Paul states that Yahweh hated Esau while he was still in the womb and loved Jacob while he was still in the womb even before they could have possibly committed any sin. Because Esau was a race mixer. Because as Paul explains in Hebrews 12, he was a profane man and a fornicator. And God foresaw that. Paul calls the children of Esau vessels of destruction. And the children of Jacob vessels of mercy. When Isaac was dedicated on the altar by his father, when he was sacrificed unto God by Abraham, all of Isaac's descendants were dedicated to the purpose of God along with him. In the ancient world, when you walked into a pagan temple and placed something on an altar, and this is described by the Greeks, that item that you place on the altar is seen as becoming the property of the God, of the temple. Yahweh demanded, out of all the people in the world, that Abraham place Isaac on an altar and sacrifice him to Yahweh. Of course, the sacrifice did not go through, or else it would have been pointless. When Abraham, obeying God, placed his son on that altar... 
everything that came out of the loins of Isaac became the property of God by the act of Abraham. That means the Edomites and the Israelites. That's why Paul says that two vessels were created from the one lump, one for destruction, that's the Edomites, and one for mercy, that's the children of Jacob. That's what Paul's telling us in Romans 9. That's why we see the division in the New Testament that we do. All history became centered around the descendants of the obedient son versus the descendants of the race mixer, but are really only a continuation of that same Genesis 3.15 theme since Esau had married into that same seed of the serpent. In the revelation of Yahshua Christ, at 2.9 and 3.9, we are warned about those who claim to be Judeans, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Satan means adversary or enemy. Esau is explicitly characterized as that enemy in Ezekiel chapter 36, which we have just read. So we see that the key to understanding the division in the New Testament is the knowledge of the difference between Jacob and Esau in ancient Judea. That's what Paul's telling us in Romans chapter 9. Those Judeans who accepted Christ, they were a sheep, they heard his voice, they became Christians. They became one with the dispersed of Israel who also accepted Christ, but who were pagans and who were never called Jews. They lost their identity as Judeans. They were racially homogenous with the Israelites of the dispersion anyway. When they became Christians, they lost their identity as Judeans. They were no longer considered Judeans, as Paul explains. They were all one in Christ. There is no Greek and Judean. You are all one in Christ. They were Christians. Those Judeans who rejected Christ were primarily of the stock of Esau. And although they had their Israelite followers, as John explains, and as the Acts, Peter and the Acts of the Apostles explains, any Israelites who continued to follow the Edomites in rejecting Christ nevertheless eventually mingled with them over the ensuing centuries. And they all maintained their identity as Judeans, and so later they were called Jews. And with their descendants are primarily the Jews of today who have also mingled themselves with many other races along the way. With all of this background history, we can now begin to read the book of Obadiah from the King James Version. Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith Yahweh God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from Yahweh and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. Of course, that word heathen can be translated nations everywhere it appears. Edom was made small among the nations and was greatly despised at this time. This prophecy is against the people of Edom 
and not against the land of Edom. The evidence of that is plain in these first verses. A land does not exalt itself, but a people can. A land does not set its habitation, but a people do set their habitation in a land. Thou art greatly despised. The Edomites have been slaves to the Israelites and then subjected to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Verse 3. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence I will bring thee down, saith Yahweh. The Edomites did dwell for some time at Petra, literally in the clefts of the rock. However, verse 4 looks for today. It's looking into the future, for the day that Esau sets his nest among the stars. Something which had not really happened until many, many centuries later, until the French Revolution and the emancipation of the Jews. From that time... From the time that they gained equal citizenship in Europe, they've set their nest among the stars. Before that time, they were despised among all the nations. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How were the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? The Septuagint in verses 5 and 6 is a little clearer, and I will read that. If thieves came, came into thee, or robbers by night, where would thou have been cast away? Would they not have stolen just enough for themselves? And if grape gatherers went to thee, would they not leave a gleaning? How, Esau, how has Esau been searched out, and how have his hidden things been, de been detected? Esau would have a remnant if he would be judged by thieves or by grape gatherers. Yahweh, when he judges Esau, will leave nothing. And all of his hidden things will be found. Obadiah, chapter, Obadiah verse 7. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. We're still talking about Yahweh's future judgment of Esau, where in verse 4 he said, Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence I will bring thee down, saith Yahweh. Again, the Septuagint in verse 7 is a little clearer. They sent thee to thy coasts. All the men of thy covenant have withstood thee. Thine allies have prevailed against thee. They have set snares under thee. They have no understanding. Once we understand that this is an end-time prophecy, this is a prophecy of the time when Esau would set his nest among the stars. And we will see that this is an end-time prophecy. Then we may see that the peoples of the world 
whom the Edomites had made league with, will also be one of the catalysts of the Edomites' final undoing. Obadiah, verse 8, Shall I not in that day, meaning that day when he judges Esau, when Esau sets his nest among the stars, shall I not in that day, saith Yahweh, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed, to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Taman was another of the, of the princes of Edom, and later a city of the Edomites was named for him. However, this isn't talking about ancient Edom. Verse 10, for thy, for thy violence against thy brother, Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. The Septuagint says, because of the slaughter of the, and the sin committed against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. Yes, this applies to the time when the Babylonians took Jerusalem and the Edomites gleefully joined in and helped them destroy the children of Israel and the temple of God. But the children of Esau have been persecuting the children of Jacob ever since. And that's very clear in history. The Edomite Jews were behind all of the Roman persecutions of Christians when Romans were pagans. The Edomite Jews were behind the Arab conquests into Europe. The Edomite Jews had created Islam and used Islam to conquer white North Africa, white Christian at that time, North Africa, and to invade white Christian Spain. The Edomite Jews used the Arabs to destroy the Byzantine Empire. When they ran out of Arabs, they started using the Turks and bringing them in to destroy the Byzantine Empire. The Edomite Jews opened the gates of the cities of Eastern Europe to the Golden Horde. So this is talking for the short term, and it's talking prophesying for the long term, and we shall see that. We shall see it because never, never has the, have those cities in Edom, in the ancient land of Edom, been filled with the blood of Edomites. And that's what this is talking about. Obadiah 11. And the day that thou stoodest on the other side, and the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger, neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou should not have entered into the gate of my people, meaning Israel, in the day of their calamity. Yeah, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. 
Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Yes, this is talking about the Babylonian invasion of the old Jerusalem and the Edomite participation in it. It's also talking about our Israelite lands today, where, because of the children of Esau, we've been flooded with strangers, and they're gaining all of our property. The same thing is happening. History repeats itself. And we see the same thing happening today. Our gates today are being flooded with aliens of every sort. So we see the Edomites were blamed for the destruction of the temple at this time, at the, well, in Obadiah's time, which had already happened, and for encouraging the destruction of the city itself. Well, they've done that same thing today. Here Esau is also blamed for much of the slaughter inflicted upon the Israelites of Jerusalem at that time. In Matthew chapter 25, we see that when Yahshua Christ returns and gathers all of the nations to judge them, those nations are not going to be judged as to how they treated themselves or as to how they treated each other. Rather, those nations are going to be judged as to how they treated his brethren, the children of Israel. Christ says that inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Bad trees cannot produce good fruit. And therefore, ultimately, all of the non-sheep nations, all of the goats, go into the lake of fire for destruction. Which is the result of what is related by the parable of the sheep and the goats. The Edomites are not his sheep, which is why, as he explains in John chapter 10, they did not believe him. To this day, they still work to destroy the true people of God in their captivity. Did the Jew not rejoice at the destruction of Christian Germany? Is the Jew not rejoicing while Europe is flooded with aliens? Is the Jew not rejoicing while America becomes flooded with aliens and the aliens are being exalted in our lands and exalted artificially? because they sure as hell don't deserve the positions they are gaining. Obadiah, verse 15. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. Well, the problem with that is that that word heathen also means nations, and we will put that in perspective. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Here we see the reward of the sheep and the goat nations. As they have treated Israel, they will be treated. Thy reward shall return upon mine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, his holy mountain is the children of Israel. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink. They shall swallow down and shall be as though they had not been. The Septuagint 
Let me read the Septuagint, Obadiah 15 and 16. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the Gentiles. As thou hast done, so it shall be done to thee. The day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. When the Son of Man returns in his glory, he will gather all the nations and he will separate them. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will treat them as they treated the least of his brethren. Unto the least of his brethren, what they've done, they have done it to him. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. As thou hast done, so it shall be done to thee. Thy recompense shall be returned on thine own head. For as thou hast drunk upon my holy mountain, meaning the children of Israel, and that's what they're doing today, so shall all the nations drink wine. They shall drink and go down and be as if they were not. Of course, the word which the King James renders heathen and the Septuagint renders Gentiles is goyim and ethnoi in the Greek, and the word means nations. The day of Yahweh is near upon all of the nations. Why would the day of Yahweh be upon all of the nations? Because of the Edomite affliction of Israel. Because this is not an immediate prophecy. It's a long-term prophecy. It's an end-time prophecy. We still have Edom in the world. Here it is meet to examine another end-time prophecy from Revelation chapter 20. Verse 1. And I saw a messenger descending from out of heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he held fast the dragon, that, old, that serpent of old, who is the false accuser and the adversary. And we see the Edomite Herod was equated as this serpent in, in, um, and, and a representative of the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. And he bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and barred and set a seal upon it that he may no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years should be completed. After these, it was necessary for him to be released for a short time. This prophecy is in our past. Once the dispersed nations of Israel had received the gospel and converted to Christianity, the Edomite Jew was bound and placed into the pit. He was cut off from white Christian society. He was forced out of the bounds of the empire. Those that remained within the empire were forced to live in ghettos and to live separately from Christians. They couldn't loan money and interest. They couldn't hold Christian slaves. They couldn't try to convert Christians. And they, had, and, and they couldn't hold public office. Everything the Jews liked to do, they weren't allowed to do. How could a Jew have fun? Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. And, and by the 6th century B.C., uh, I'm sorry, by the 6th century A.D., most of the Jews had migrated out of the empire. They migrated to Khazaria. They migrated to Arabia. They migrated to northern Africa and several other places. There were some left within the bounds of the empire. But they were, for the most part, separated and chained in a pit. 
Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they who sat upon them, and judgment had been given to them, and the souls of those having been beheaded on account of the testimony of Yahshua, and on account of the word of Yahweh, and who did not worship the beast nor his image, and did not receive the inscribed mark upon their foreheads and upon their hands. And they lived and ruled with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first restoration. Blessed and holy is he having a part in the first restoration. Over these, the second death does not have authority, but they shall be priests of Yahweh and of Christ and shall rule with him for the thousand years. The first restoration was the feudal period, where the economy in Europe, Christian economy, was not based upon usury. The dragon was cast into the pit, and while the world was not perfect, Christians lived their lives relatively free from the perversions of Satan, which the Jews used to destroy the society. While today they are called the Dark Ages, that is only because Christians were for the most part free from Jewish influence. That describes feudal Europe up until the time between the 15th and 18th, well, well the 16th and 19th centuries when the Jew climbed out of the pit. And, and I've elucidated that on many occasions in my Revelation series and, and in other programs. Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 and 14 and 15. And when the thousand years are completed, the adversary shall be released from his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, of which the number of them is as... Is as the sand of the sea. And they had gone up upon the breast of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints and the beloved city. And fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. And the false accuser who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire. And sulfur, where are also the beast and the false prophet. And they shall be tormented day and night for the eternal ages. And death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. So we see that the lake of fire is a destructive fire, right? It's not a cleansing fire. It's a destructive fire. Because death and Hades cannot be cleansed. Death and hell cannot be cleansed. They can only be eliminated. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if one is not found written in the book of life, he is cast into the lake of fire. This is where we are today. All of the formerly Christian nations, the mountains of Israel, are now governed by Satan and overrun by aliens. Many prophecies converge on this very time, including Revelation chapter 17, a prophecy of the time leading up to the fall of Babylon, where 1717 says that our kingdom will be handed over to the beast. We see in 1913 in the United States, but earlier in most European nations, all of our economies, all Christian economies, were handed over to the Edomite Jew, the last holdouts being Tsarist Russia and Nazi Germany, National Socialist Germany, and we see what happened to them. They were destroyed by the same Edomite Jew.
Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 30, converges on this time with these other prophecies, where these prophecies say, where we see in Obadiah that Yahweh's judgment will be against all nations, where we see in Matthew that Christ will gather all nations, where we see in the Revelation chapter 20, where Satan shall climb out of the pit and he shall deceive and gather all the nations against the children of Israel, we see in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 that Gog and Magog will gather all the nations against the children of Israel. And we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 30, that the house of Israel and the house of Judah will be sown with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And today, all white Christian nations are overrun by all non-white, non-Christian nations. And who is behind it all? Satan, the Edomite Jew, the Edomites and the Canaanites who call themselves Jews. They're behind it. And that could be demonstrated by their own words over and over again. We see here that Obadiah, in Obadiah, that Yahweh says, at verse 15, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. As thou have done, so shall it be done to thee. Thy recompense shall be returned on thine own head. For as thou hast drunk upon thy holy mountain, meaning that they've gotten drunk off the children of Israel, so shall all the nations drink wine. They shall drink and go down and be as if they were not. Satan, the Jew, has gathered all of these nations against the children of Israel. And we are promised their destruction, their complete destruction here in Obadiah. We are promised that they shall be as though they had not been. There are similar ends prophesied of all the nations which Satan gathers, of Gog and Magog, and all the nations which Satan gathers against the children of Israel, Satan meaning the adversary of God, primarily the Edomite Jew. We are told in Ezekiel, chapter 39, verse 12, that seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them, so that they may cleanse the land. Psalm 118 is a messianic prophecy. Christ quoted from it in reference to himself. Here are the first 17, no, I won't read the first 17 verses. I'll read from verse 6 through verse 12. Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yahweh takes my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in princes or political leaders, right? All nations compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compassed me about. Yeah, they compassed me about, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compassed me about like bees, 
They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. Some fools, even some fools that call themselves Christian identity pastors, may call this exterminationism, but it is brought to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and only his enemies despise his words. Obadiah 1.16, the wrath of judgment coming upon all nations, Yahweh shall make them as though they had not been. as though they had not existed. Imagine that. There are fools in Christian identity who claim that the only people guaranteed certain destruction in the Bible are the Edomite Jews. Well, guess again. They read Obadiah 1.18, but they failed to read Obadiah 1.16. They should start reading Obadiah at the beginning, and they should read the rest of the biblical prophecy. They should read Micah chapter 4. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. Like a woman in travail, for now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon, there shalt thou be delivered. Meaning that we will be delivered from our captivity. Babylon being an allegory. An allegory for mystery Babylon today, which has us, once again, in captivity. Now also many nations are gathered against thee. They say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. This describes this very time in which we live, and it parallels Jeremiah 31, verses 27 to 30, and it parallels Obadiah Verses 15 through 18. Micah 4.12. But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh. Neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them, the many nations gathered against us. He shall gather them as sheaves to the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy Oops, brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Micah 4, like Obadiah, and Ezekiel, and Psalm 118, all prophecy the vengeance which we await today. The next verses, Obadiah 17 and 18. Prophecy, the final demise of the house of Esau. This prophecy is in our future. It can't be in our past because it simply hasn't happened. And that is demonstrated not only here, but with an inspection of the parallel prophecy found at Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5. Note that Malachi was a prophet of the second temple. Malachi was the prophet, the first significant prophet, I think um, Zechariah also, of the period after, immediately after the second temple was rebuilt, after Jerusalem was rebuilt. Jerusalem was rebuilt by the Israelites who returned to Judea. There was absolutely no time in history in which Malachi chapter 1 verse 4 could possibly have been fulfilled 
until this time which we await today, when the Edomite Jews returned to rebuild Jerusalem and Judea under Zionism, pretending to be true Israel. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us was not Esau Jacob's brother? Here we have the true Israel, the true Israel of Old Testament scripture. Found in today's white Europeans, and here we see in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, that they are more concerned for the children of Esau. And that's the situation that we have right now today. And we have never had this situation in history until today. When today's white Europeans, the true Israelites, are deceived. And they think that the Edomites are the real Israel. And they're concerned more for these Edomites than they are for themselves and their God and their covenant. Sayeth Yahweh, Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for dragons of the wilderness, which are the Arabs who inhabit those places today. Oh, yes. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return. We are impoverished. Doesn't that sound like a Jew? But we will return and build the desolate places. That is Zionism today. That is going on right now. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever, the Israeli state and the Jews in general, because they are the children of Edom. And your eye shall see, and you shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel. We wait upon that fulfillment. It has never been fulfilled. Even the destruction of the Edomites in Jerusalem in 70 AD did not fulfill this. It made it possible because we have today where Edom says we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. The only event in history which that could possibly describe is the Zionism that we see since the end of the, 18th, of the 19th century. The return of Edomites to Palestine to rebuild the desolate places. It describes them perfectly. That's the fulfillment of Malachi 1.4. And it's the only possible fulfillment. And now we await Yahweh's casting them down. Obadiah 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Isn't it quaint that it's named Zionism? And there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. And the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. And we see in Zechariah that the day will come 
that there shall not be a Canaanite in the house of Yahweh, Zechariah 14.21. The last words in Zechariah. Zechariah also being a second temple prophet. That is our Christian hope. There will be nothing left of the house of Esau, but there shall also be nothing left of all of the nations that Esau brings against the children of Israel in the last days, which we suffer presently. And Micah tells us that, and the Revelation tells us that, and Obadiah confirms it, and Psalm 118 confirms it, and Ezekiel 39 confirms it. Seven months to bury the bodies. That's our Christian hope. And those who deny it make themselves enemies of God. And they know who they are. The clowns know who they are, claiming to be Christian identity and lying about the scripture. Obadiah 19, And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. This is language modeled on the Old Testament, they of the south being the people of Judah and Simeon, modeled on the Old Testament arrangement of the tribes and in respect to the geography and nation of the Old Kingdom. It's allegorical language, prophetic, to the time when the children of Israel finally inherit the earth, which hasn't happened yet. But it's coming, and that is our Christian hope. And there won't be anybody left when we do, because all those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Verse 20, And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem which is in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. And Savior shall come up upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. Arise, Zion, and thresh. Micah chapter 4. That's the day we await. And when we get the call, we will know it. When the seventh trumpet blows, there will be no mistaking it. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I'll be back tomorrow night with a discussion of the general, a general discussion on the settlement of Europe from the biblical and classical historical perspective. Thank you again. Good night.